0: Join with me as we pray before we look into God's Word. Father, we do thank you this morning. It's been so abundantly clear, Lord, that we've been hearing and singing and participating in the sounds of Christmas, especially these songs where we sing again about the wonder of our Savior's birth, the birthday of the King, about the angels as they announce the birth to the shepherds, about as we just sang in one of the verses here, this, uh, this glory star as it led the wise men to, to the one who would be the child and the king. But even more than that, the incarnation and Christmas brings us to a place of worship. Just as it did for those shepherds and for the wise men. Lord, it brings us to a place where we, where we can do nothing but extol you and exalt you. And we do that because you planned and accomplished such a great, first, uh, such a great salvation for, for those of us that you have called to yourself by faith in that Savior. And so we thank you that all of these great events are what bring us together to worship. We pray that even now as we look into these wonderful mysteries again, as we glimpse at your glory, as we now look into your word, we ask that you would fill us with renewed wonder. We ask that you would continue to change us, that you would continue to transform us, instill within us a a greater longing and a greater desire to know you and to, to love you and to worship you. We pray these things in the name of Jesus, your Son and our Savior and our great High Priest. Amen. While we are in the last section of the book of Exodus this morning, chapters 35 to 40, a large section, and so I encourage you to turn there in your Bibles. If you're using those Bibles that are on the chair racks in front of you, you'll find Exodus chapter 35 on page 75. And I just want to read this morning a couple of sections in those six chapters just to sort of orient us to see where this is going. One is close to the beginning, and one is close to the end. And as I'm reading, just to remind you that at this point here, Moses... That great deliverer of Israel is the one who is, who is talking to the, to the people that are gathered there at the base of Mount Sinai. Moses, like I said, being that man that was appointed by God to lead Israel out of Egypt and toward the promised land. And so I want to read from chapter 35, verse 10, and then we're going to flip over to, wait, to chapter 40 in just a little bit. So Exodus 35, verse 10, says this. Let every skillful craftsman among you come and make all that the Lord has commanded. Then he makes a list the tabernacle, its tent and its covering, its hooks and its frames, its bars, its pillars and its bases, the ark with its poles, the mercy seat and the veil of the screen, the table with its poles and all its utensils, and the bread of the presence, the lampstand also for the light with its utensils and its lamps, and the oil for the light, and the altar of incense with its poles. And the anointing oil and oil and the fragrant incense and the screen for the door at the door of the tabernacle, the altar of burnt offering with its grating of bronze, its poles and all its utensils, the basin and its stand, the hangings of the court, its pillars, its bases and the screen for the gate of the court, the pegs of the tabernacle, the pegs of the court and their cords, the finely worked garments for ministering in the holy place, the holy garments for Aaron the priest and the garments for his sons for their service as priests. And then just go over to chapter 40, over to verse 16. This Moses did. So you could almost connect these two. This Moses did according to all that the Lord had commanded him, so he did. In the first month, in the second year, on the first day of the month, the tabernacle was erected. Moses erected the tabernacle, and he laid its bases and set up its frames, put in its poles, and raised up its pillars. And he spread the tent over the tabernacle and put the covering of the tent over it, as the Lord had commanded Moses. He took the testimony, put it into the ark, put the poles on the ark, and set the mercy seat above the ark. And he brought the ark into the tabernacle and set up the veil of the screen and screened the ark of the testimony as the Lord had commanded Moses. Moses And he's going to go through and he's going to set up all the furniture exactly as the Lord had commanded. And just go to verse 33. And he erected the court around the tabernacle and the altar and set up the screen of the gate of the court. So Moses finished the work. This is the word of the Lord. Now... As you read that, and as I go through all of those little details, you might be saying, this does not sound like the nativity scene, or a story about a baby in a manger. Why are we talking about this on December, what is it today, the 9th? But trust me, we're going to get there. This is indeed about God coming down to earth to be with his people. And this, in many ways, anticipates the birth of Jesus. In lots of ways, this is actually setting the stage For Christmas. Christmas in our day is all about the sights and the sounds. And we love the sights and the sounds. We love all the lights. And we love the glitter. And we love the jingling bells. Well, if that's true, and if that's what Christmas is for you, then you might be comforted to know that this last part of Exodus has all of that and more. There are definitely lights in this tabernacle. There is an ever-lit lampstand that's sitting there in, in the Holy of Holies that the priests had to kept, keep lit. There's lots of glitter in the priest's clothing. And you can read all about the magnificence of the clothes that were needed in order to get into this place. And there are even, even jingling bells. If there were priests that wore that kind of garb today, and if you had your eyes closed... While they were sort of walking around, you might think that there was a guy with a Santa Claus suit around. Or his little elves jingling the bells. Part of what God wanted priests to wear when they came into his presence were bells at the bottom of their robes. And if you want to read about that, just look over at chapter 39, verses 25 and 26. And so Exodus... I'm making the case, has all the sights and the sounds of Christmas. As we saw last week, you could think of this as a preview to Christmas or a foretaste of Christmas. Last week we looked at why, how Exodus shows us the need for Christmas. Well, we're going to get to the end of Exodus today, the end of a book. And what do you usually look for when you start to get close to the end of a book or a story? Well we might look for a, and they lived happily ever after, kind of ending, kind of moment. But we also look for all the um, suspense that had been built up in the book to be resolved. And you see that sense of suspense in the title of the sermon, Will God Come Down Among His People? That's the question that the people of Israel that were gathered here at this camp wanted an answer to. Well, Exodus has that. That's a big part of this story. There is a resolution. There's sort of a they all lived happily ever after kind of moment. But we should also remember that even though Exodus ends, and it is one book, it is part of a bigger book that has 66 books in it that make up the Bible. And so even though we do have a resolution here, it's just a partial resolution of a bigger story. The story of God and the story of his dealings with the world, and especially his dealings and his intentions for the people that he created. And so as we start to put a bit of a bow on this book today, as we look at how this story end, ends and how it sort of resolves, if you were to read these last six chapters, you might say, wait a minute, <laughs> I've already read this part. This all sounds so familiar, and you would be right, it is Familiar, And it does repeat a lot of the same stuff from back in chapters 25 to 31. And so let me just quickly show you why the repetition and, and the slight but very important differences. All this detail and repetition in Exodus 25 to 40 might make people think that this book sort of just fades out in terms of a, that dramatic element. You might think it's missing. Got tons of action and suspense in the first 24 chapters and then all of this stuff about how to make a tent and a fence and what kind of clothing were needed by the people that would go into that tent in the last 16 chapters. So here's the progression and here's why this last part is important. Exodus, like we know, is a story of God's rescue of people in their slavery and their exodus out of that slavery. But Exodus is not only a story of a, of a superhero who sort of sweeps in, and, or swoops in, I guess would be the right word, and, and saves the people and then swoops right back out again once they've been rescued and can live in freedom. Exodus is more than that. Exodus is a story of the God who not only rescues them, but the God who is determined to stay there with them, with his people, among his people. The problem is that there is a wide gap and that there is a fundamental difference between God and his people. Namely, he is not one of them. He is completely other than them. Now, I'm definitely no expert on superhero movies, but in the little I've seen, our, our modern superhero stories have some of that. The heroes often swoop in and and always have some sort of a a superpower that makes them able to rescue people. Yet they all have some kind of human alter ego, and they all have some kind of flaw or weakness that exposes them. God, on the other hand, is foundationally and fundamentally different from his people. In his being, in that he is holy and perfect. He has no flaw. He has no weakness, and so for God to be with and among his people, well, frankly, it takes some doing on his part. And Exodus 25 to 40 tells us what he does. He gives the people his plans, and then he conscripts some of these people to make his plans happen. And therein lies the importance of Exodus 25 to 40 to the bigger story. And therein also lies the suspense. Would everything that God tells them to do here really happen exactly the way God had planned? Would these people get it done? Would they get it done right? And would God then come down and be among his people? Well, right in the middle of that, whole bigger section, Exodus 25 to 40, something happened that pretty much threatened to totally overturn and derail that plan. And we saw it last week. While Moses was up on the mountain with God, getting all these extensive instructions from God, the people down below decided that they would venture out on their own, that they would do things their own way instead of following God's instructions. That is human nature, we learned, right from the Garden of Eden. Philip Ryken, one of the commentators on Exodus, put it into contemporary church terms this way. He said, the people had sinned by setting up an alternative worship service around a golden calf. They went to Aaron, who was the second in command, the associate pastor, if you will, and said they wanted to make a few changes in the worship service while he was gone. Thankfully, our assistant pastor here would never do that, I think. I remember actually being an associate pastor and using the old motto when the cat's away, (laughs) the mice will play, right? But saying it was here making a few changes undersells really the severity of all this. Moses got more to the heart of what they did when he said the people have sinned a great sin. People have sinned a great sin. So remember the progression now, Exodus 25:31, God gives Moses these detailed instructions for this place in which he would make a display to show that he was in the middle of middle of their campground. But in chapter 32 they commit this terrible sin led by Aaron, the guy that was supposed to be their high priest. That was supposed to go in to God to represent the people, to make atonement for sin. Now what? Would God at this point just throw up his hands and say, that's it, I'm done with these people? Would God abandon his plans? Well, in some ways, he did say exactly that, didn't he? But he said it just so Moses would intercede on their behalf, which is also a shadow of things to come. But by now, we should know that God is not the type to abandon his plans. He is holy? Yes. Which means he will punish sin. Yes, and he did. But some other factors we need to remember about God. Number one, he does not change. And his plans are perfect. And we learned in the last chapter, specifically in chapter 34, verse 6, that God is... Merciful and gracious. He is slow to anger. He is abounding in steadfast love and faithfulness. Aaron sinned. Israel sinned. But God's grace would win the day. Our sins, they are many. But his mercy is more. Singing a hymn, right? Grace is greater than all our sin. And so in chapter 35, Exodus, interestingly, picks up right where it left off in chapter, at the end of chapter 31. Chapter 31 ended by talking about the Sabbath. In fact, you could read chapter 31, verses 17 and 18, and then verse 35, verse 1, and feel like you haven't skipped a beat. Alex Mottier said, The sin of the golden calf was not even a hiccup in the Lord's purposes. He picked up again at the point reached before the incident of the calf, as if to say, as I was saying when I was so rudely interrupted. And so chapter 35 not only picks up from chapters 25 to 31, it pretty much repeats the same material. The difference is that God was giving Moses the plans in chapters 25 to 31, and here in 35 to 40, Moses starts to carry out those plans. Let me show you the difference just in a couple of sections. Go back to chapter 25, verse verse 8. Chapter 25, verse 8. This is the Lord talking to Moses, and he says, Let them make me a sanctuary, that I may dwell in their midst. And then the line that keeps on repeating through those instructions, You shall make. So he's telling them, he's instructing them, Instructing Moses what to tell them what to do and how to make it. So you see that line, you shall make, there in verse 10, in verse 13, in verse 17, in verse 18, verse 23, verse 25, verse 26, and it just keeps on going, keeps on coming up. You shall make. Now zip over to chapter 35. So now we've got Moses, we haven't got God talking to Moses, we've got Moses talking to the people Basically, passing on God's design instructions that that God had given him to the people that were going to put it together. And that's summed up in chapter 35, verse 10, where it says, Let every skilled craftsman among you come and let him make all that the Lord has commanded. And that line that keeps repeating is, he made. My Bible, I'm not sure about yours, that you're looking at, is divided into paragraphs. And every single paragraph, from all the way from chapter 36, verse 8, to chapter 38, verse 1, starts off with the words, He made. He made. And so it transitions here from God planning the work, back in chapter 25 to 31, to the people doing the work, in chapters 35 to 40. So while it sounds like it's just repeating the same thing, that's the difference. Chapters 32 to 34 are in between those two sections, but they just show that the great sin that they sinned would not ultimately deter God from his plans to dwell in their midst. They caused a bit of a construction delay, if you want to put it that way, but the work went on to completion. God was not distracted from his work by the people's sin or from his intentions and purposes. And that's basically how Exodus ends, with the completion of this tent. But it doesn't just say that they finished the tent. It goes into extensive detail on what they did and how they did it. And like I said, it pretty much repeats word for word what God had said in in, in the previous section. The question is why? Why go to the trouble of repeating it all again? Why not just say, he finished, he did it? Well, the answer to that question is going to help us solve the suspense that we thought about from the top. And that was, would God actually come down into this place that the people were making for him? Well, the answer doesn't come until the last six verses of chapter 40. And the last six verses of the book. For us today, there's really no suspense. We know how it ends. But for the people that were there in the desert, you have to put yourself into their minds. They, they didn't know for sure. But they made sure that they did everything possible to to ensure that God would come down. They were heavily invested in this. They knew that they'd never make it to the promised land otherwise. So I just want to highlight a few key phrases and points in order to create a a sense of suspense for you. Maybe recreate the, the sense of suspense that they had so that you might... Put yourself in their shoes as you think about the fact that you're also heavily invested in the fact that God must come down in order for you to make it from the bondage of your Egypt, the bondage of your sin, to the promised land. You would never make it. I would never make it unless God came down. So here's some lessons we can learn from these last parts of Exodus. Just a couple here. Here two out of many others that there are for sure. The first lesson is that God works in our hearts so that we have a heart for God. God works in our hearts so that we would have a heart for God. You notice that first in the fact that Exodus doesn't end even after they turned on him and disobeyed his commandments in chapter 32. And the lesson there is that there is hope for sinners. God is faithful not only to his plans, but God is faithful to his people. Yes, we will fail him, but God is slow to anger, and our God is quick to forgive. And not only is God quick to forgive, he also transforms our diseased hearts and does such a radical and invasive surgery on our hearts that he actually stirs our hearts to serve him. I get that from, section, from the section in chapter 35, down in verses 20 to 22. But in order to see that, I I, I just want to remind you about what happened in chapter 32 again. Remember, what happened there is that so-called great sin. What was it that the great sin was all about? Remember the people again? They didn't think Moses was coming down from the mountain, and so they convinced Aaron to make them other gods that would lead them through the desert rather than the one true God. And so what does Aaron do? Do you remember what he tells them to bring? He tells them to bring all the gold earrings to gather them up that they can use that, that gold from those gold earrings to make this calf, to fashion this calf. And Aaron would be the one that would, that would make it. And so here we have most of the same people, when we get to Exodus 35. Some had been taken out by God's punishment, but most of them are the same. And what does Moses say here? Look at chapter 35, verse 20. Then all the congregation of the people of Israel departed from the presence of Moses, and they came, everyone whose heart stirred him, and everyone whose spirit moved him, and brought the Lord's contribution to be used for the tent of meeting and for all its service and for the holy garments. And so they came, both men and women, all who were of a willing heart, brought brooches and earrings and signet rings and armlets, all sorts of gold objects, every man dedicating an offering of gold to the Lord. Where before they dedicated all their gold to make an idol, now they were dedicating it to God. The gold had been reconstituted for God's purposes rather than working against God's purposes. And what changed here? Their hearts. God transformed their hearts. Everyone whose heart stirred him. All who were of a willing heart brought gold. If you go down to verse 26, it says the same about the women who worked on this. All the women whose hearts stirred them. Verse 29, all the men and women of Israel whose heart moved them brought a free will offering to the Lord. He changed them from the inside out. He transforms and he washes the hearts of his people and he brings them to a place where they will serve him. God works in our hearts so that we would have a heart for God. Hearts that are moved and stirred, willing to give and to serve God. Hearts that are reconstituted to give to him freely out of out of, our, out of the gifts that he gives to us, out of the generous hearts that he has remade our hearts into. Ezekiel 36 says, I will sprinkle clean water on you, and you shall be clean from all your uncleannesses, and from all your idols I will cleanse you. And I will give you a new heart and a new spirit I will put within you, and I will remove the heart of stone from your flesh and give you a heart of flesh and I will put my spirit within you and cause you to walk in my statutes and be careful to obey my rules. It's part of the wonder of what God does in salvation. He changes our hearts. And that brings us to our next lesson when we think about the fact that he causes us to walk in his statutes and obey his rules. When our hearts are transformed by God, he will cause us to walk in his statutes and be careful to obey his rules. And wow! were they ever careful to obey and to get this tabernacle right? That fact is an obvious emphasis in these six chapters. It shows up in the words, they made it as the Lord commanded them. or As the Lord commanded. Those, those words are repeated. I counted at least, 26 because I don't count very well. I counted 26 times in these verses, in this section, where you read those words. The biggest concentration of those words, and the easiest place to see it, is if you go over to chapter 39. That same chapter, where every paragraph starts with the words, he made, remember I said that before, or they made? Every paragraph also ends with the words, as the Lord commanded Moses. Every piece in that tabernacle was made, if you take the first word and combine it with the last words, was made as the Lord commanded Moses. The the precision with which God commanded is the same care and precision they took to do it exactly as the Lord commanded. They were, in the words of Ezekiel 36 again, careful to obey, careful to obey. They were no doubt influenced by God's anger and judgment at the great sin in chapter 32 where he took a bunch of them out. They weren't going to repeat that mistake. But they were also careful in order to do everything they could to ensure that God would come down and occupy that space in the midst of them and that he would dwell among them. The last paragraph, chapter 39, verses 32 to 34, is especially helpful in letting us see the benefits of obedience to God. So this is after everything's done, the furniture is finished as the Lord commanded, the, the, the priest was outfitted exactly as the Lord commanded, and now they come back and they and they present their work to Moses, sort of for inspection. They they, they needed Moses to sign off on their work. They needed his seal of approval. So look at verse thirty three. This is chapter thirty nine, verse thirty three. They brought the tabernacle to Moses. And it lists all the items again. And then skip down to verse 42. According to all that the Lord had commanded Moses, so the people of Israel had done all the work. According to all that the Lord had commanded, so they had done all the work. Verse 43, And Moses saw all the work, and behold, they had done it as the Lord had commanded, so they had done it. <laughs> Just making it very clear that it was precisely as it was commanded. And then Moses blessed them. What an amazing moment that would have been for the men and women who worked on this. To receive the blessing of Moses for their work. And remember, this is the same Moses that came down from the mountain back in in chapter 32. At that point, he did not bless them. He cursed them. And do you remember how he cursed them? What what he did to show that he cursed them? He smashed the tablets that had what? The Ten Commandments. Not doing as the Lord commanded incites the burning hot wrath of God. That's how it's actually described. The burning hot wrath of God doing as the Lord commanded, on the other hand, invites God's blessing. So one incites God's wrath, the other invites God's blessing. That's where we want to be, isn't it? As God's people? Under God's blessing rather than God's curse. But there's a reality that's sort of laying under the surface of all this, isn't there? And the reality is, like we saw last week, we are unable to do exactly as the Lord commanded. Even though all this work was now done and it was all good, even though it all passed inspection, you know, you just think about this inspection. It was almost like when God actually created the earth, right, in, uh, in Genesis. Remember, he, in, he was the inspector there. He, he inspected his own work. The last verse of Genesis 1 said, God saw everything that he had made and behold, it was very good. And God also says there that he blessed Adam and Eve. So you got the The same thing. inspection of the work and then a blessing. But we all know what happened next. Genesis 2 sort of repeats that, and then Genesis 3, we have the fall. And this tabernacle, as wonderful and as exact as it was, was not the final answer to our sin either. The tabernacle is only a shadow. The very purpose behind all of the glitter is that people could still not get to God without all kinds of sacrifices for sin over and over again. And that's because we sin over and over again. That was the point. As good as it was, as beautiful as it was, it didn't finally accomplish what we needed. It was only a tent. And tents are a temporary dwelling. There was a better tabernacle to come yes there was a temple in between there it wasn't just a uh, it was more concrete structure that they had there in the time of David and Solomon that was coming but there was still a better tabernacle to come Christmas needed to come and isn't it interesting that God would design that Jesus came and that even Jesus would too have to pass inspection Remember when Jesus was baptized? What were the words that came down from heaven? This is my son with whom I am well pleased. And then, of course, the final seal of approval came when after Jesus went to the cross for our sins, as our high priest carrying our sins to the cross, nailing them to the cross, paying the penalty for our sins once and for all, after Jesus dies on the cross, God examines his work and he gives his final stamp of approval. How? By raising Jesus from the dead. And here's the thing as far as personal application. If you, if you rely totally in what Jesus did on the cross, you will then receive God's blessing. God's eternal blessing, the blessing of eternal life. That, friends, is the glory and the majesty of God's better tabernacle. That is the glory of the cross. And eventually, of course, God makes his tabernacle in us. As God comes down to us and lives in us. Well, that brings us back to Exodus 40 as we end the suspense. They had made everything. It had past inspection, in chapter 40, actually, the Lord gives his final instructions to Moses. He has him set up the tabernacle, as we already read, and he places everything in exactly the right spot. And then God has Moses anoint it all, sort of to, he actually says there, so that it may become holy and set apart. And then verse 16, this Moses did according to all that the Lord commanded him. End of verse 33, so Moses finished the work leaving only one thing. Would God come down? And Exodus ends with the glorious resolution, if you want to put it that way, or the glorious solution. Look again at chapter 40, verse 34. This is the apex of the book. Culmination. Then the cloud covered the tent of meeting, and the glory of the Lord filled the tabernacle. Just imagine these people now. Put yourself into their shoes again. What an amazing sight that would have been. The Lord would, in fact, be among them. Glory came down. And that cloud would be on the tabernacle, it says, day and night, guiding them and protecting them as they made their way to the promised land. But verse 35, there's a couple of words there. That kind of puts a downer on those great words in in verse 34. It says, and Moses was not able to enter. That just tells us that it wasn't done yet. More was required. In the immediate context, that's why we have Leviticus coming next. Leviticus would give all of the gory and the bloody details of what else needed to happen in order to deal with the sins of the people, in order to have those sins removed. But all of those, as I called them last week, rinse and repeat bloody sacrifices, would still leave sinners groping for one final sacrifice. And Christmas would be God's final answer. Is this your final answer? Tabernacle? No. Christmas would be God's final answer, God's final solution, God's greater solution for our sin. For us who live on this side of the cross, Exodus is meant to help you see the holiness and the beauty and the glory of God in the person of Jesus. They start dressing up the priest sort of as a foreshadowing of, the, of that, but it's finally seen in Christ, who doesn't have to wear any sort of clothes to look beautiful. He wasn't even beauty, beautiful in his own appearance, but he was beautiful in what he did. Because it filled up exactly what God had been planning all along. Fulfilled that. It would be God's final solution, God's greater solution. And it's meant, all of that is meant to leave you, at the end of Exodus, longing for Christ. And then worshipping God for sending Him. And God, in His divine mercy and amazing grace and in His great love, would come down... He would come down not in a glory cloud where his, where his face would remain veiled and hidden, remember like it was to Moses, but he would come down in the person of Jesus Christ, one who could be seen, one who could be heard, one who could be touched. And that coming would not be accompanied by a glory cloud filling the tabernacle, but by a choir of angels that sang glory to God in the highest. That coming would not be accompanied by a glory cloud guiding them, but by a glory star. That would guide not just Israelites, but Gentiles to that place where they could worship a better and superior Savior. One who would take us with them in a better and superior Exodus. The one who would finally rout the enemy. Not just Pharaoh, but the enemy of our sin. The one who would finally deliver his people from their bondage. The one who would bring his people to God by removing our sin through his own blood. The one who would tell us how to live as God's people. And the one who would permanently dwell among us and in us through his spirit. Or in the words of 2 Corinthians 4, verse 6, for God who said, let light shine of, out of darkness, has shone, not in a temporary tabernacle, not in a temporary tent, has shone in our hearts to give the light of the knowledge of of the glory of God in the face of Jesus Christ. That's where we find the glory of God as we look to Christ. May God use this wonderful book of Exodus to help us to long for the Savior and to be thankful for the Savior that He has now given us. Let's pray. Father, we thank You We thank you for your glory. We thank you for your grace. We thank you for this even better tabernacle. Thank you for the better exodus. We thank you that these events here have been recorded and that you have preserved them for our good and for your glory. We thank you for revealing yourself as our rescuer and our deliverer from the bondage of sin. And you have done that most profoundly through your Son. Thank you that you have transformed our hearts. And we thank you that you continue to speak and that you continue to live among us and to guide us and to conform us from glory to glory into the image of your Son. And we pray that you would help us now to follow you and to obey you because you are our God. We pray these things by the power of Jesus and in the name of Jesus. Amen. Grow in the grace and knowledge of our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ. To him be the glory, both now and to the day of eternity. Amen.